These are the daily lectionary comments for January the 15th. We're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 37, beginning at verse 15, where Ezekiel uh, prophesies a time when Israel and Judah will be reunited under one king, David. And then Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Here, uh, Paul is transitioning uh, from a discussion of the righteousness of God to a discussion of the new life which that righteousness engenders. Ezekiel has just finished talking about how God would would pour out his Holy Spirit on his people and the valley of dry bones, the new life that he would give them. And now he addresses something that's been an important part of Israel's past for a long time, and that is the split between Israel and Judah, the civil war that began right after Solomon died. It has resulted in two kingdoms, the kingdoms of the north, which uh, uh, which did not remain loyal to the house of David, and the kingdom of Judah, which did remain loyal to David. And of course, David was uh, the king and his, and his uh, progeny. Uh, that was the dynasty under which, which God had selected to rule over his people. So they had been split. And of course, Israel had been disassembled as a nation. It, it had ceased to exist around 722 when the Assyrians invaded. Individual Israelites were scattered all over the place, and some is individual Israelites did, in fact, either remain loyal to, uh, to the house of David or became loyal to the house of David. So there was always a discussion about how God would return uh, the, the exiles uh, to the land, and he would include not just those from Judah who were exiled uh, by Babylon, but also the faithful Israelites who had been uh, exiled by Assyria. They too would return. And here, um, Ezekiel is told to take a couple of sticks. Uh, this is, uh, there were several instances in the prophet Ezekiel. Uh, Jeremiah also does this. A couple of the other prophets do this. That is, they engage in certain actions. In this case, it's it's taking sticks and and tying them together and then waiting for people to ask what this means and and using that as an object lesson and so here uh ezekiel is told to take a couple of sticks and the whole point of this is to show that israel uh the people of god had been divided into two uh but that god's plans is that they shall be reunited again now there are other things that are very interesting in this uh, prophecy number one is that they will be reunited Israel and Judah but if you look at verse 24 it says my servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd so of course Judah remained faithful to the house of David at this time of course the house of David is obliterated Jehoiachin which is would be the Davidic king is is incarcerated and the Davidic kingship really never would be resurrected in, in anything like what it had been because Judah is no longer going to really have uh, a um, uh, sort of an independence, even after they return from from exile uh, under the Persian rule, they'll they'll still be under the Persians and then under the Greeks and then under the Romans. But nevertheless, there is this promise regarding the kingship, and it shall be restored, and that kingship shall be of the house of David. So this is interesting because those Israelites whom God is promising to return and reunite are going to be reunited under the very dynasty which they refused to submit to before under David. Now, he says other things, too, here in this prophecy. Again, a beautiful prophecy regarding uh, the future of the people of God. He says, I will cleanse them 
that will save them uh, uh, from uh, from uh, their idols and how they had defiled themselves. I will cleanse them. I will make a covenant of peace with them, he says. My dwelling place shall be with them forever. He uses this expression also. They shall be uh, my people and I shall I will be their God. That's verse 23 or verse 27. I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is a common refrain among the prophets and especially in Ezekiel, this idea that God will be their God for real and they will be his people for real and he will dwell in their midst. It says in the very last verse of our reading, it says, my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. So this is uh, what we would call the, the eschatology of the Old Testament. That is to say, uh, the, the future end of things as seen from the point of view of the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we, we have uh, this eschatology is, well, would we say that the New Testament is the eschatology of the Old Testament? I mean, we are what the prophets of the Old Testament were looking forward now, when in the New Testament we talk about eschatology, we are thinking about things which will occur when Christ comes again. So David will still be reigning over us uh, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. God does dwell with, uh, in, uh, within us in, in, in his sanctuary, in our midst. He indwells the church and indwells individual Christians. And in the new heaven and the new earth, God will be personally there uh, with us. So we have an eschatology from the point of view of the Old Testament, which is really largely a description of the New Testament, but in some cases even goes beyond that. And then we have an eschatology of the New Testament, which looks forward to when Jesus comes again. And all of these things are a unity. We get clearer and clearer visions as we go uh, more through time and see how God's plan actually unfolds. Now, one point here that Ezekiel is making is he talks a lot about the people being settled in the land. Well, Settled in the land means a number of things. Uh, most profoundly, what it means is that physical people need a physical place to live. If we are to live with God, there must be a place to live with God. So when we think of the land, we think of a place to live in righteousness with our God. That can be the land of Canaan. That was what it originally was, the promised land. Um, but then we can think of, uh, of the, the presence of God more generally, and that is, for example, the, the church triumphant, those who have finished their work in this world, have died, and are now uh, at Christ's, uh, in Christ's presence. Uh, they constitute being in the presence of God and having a life unlike what we've lived here. Then also we can think of the new creation when Christ comes again and there will be a new heaven and a new earth, which is what Jesus is referring to when he says, the meek shall inherit the earth, which is really referring back to Psalm 37 and the whole idea of this land in which God's people will live. Okay, so that's enough for Ezekiel's continued prophecy regarding uh, the future glory of his people, uh, which is really a picture of, of, in part of the New Testament and in part of even things beyond that. Okay, Romans chapter 6, um, the book of Romans takes an, another advance in its, its thinking. It begins from, from chapter 1 to chapter 3, verse 20. The discussion uh, is the, the, the grip that sin has on this world. And I need to explain here very quickly, sin is not just bad deeds. We, we can talk about sins and being bad deeds, but sins, bad deeds are really 
uh, more of a symptom of sin. Sin is less deeds that we do as it is a condition in which we live. It's a condition uh, divided from God, separated from God, and in a life of futility. So uh, chapters 1 through chapter 3, verse 20, is really a discussion of, of the life of sin in this world. And then chapter 3, verse 21, through the end of chapter 5, is the discussion of the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God overthrows uh, the, the, the world of sin and corruption, and it talks about how it does this. This is the righteousness of God on account of what Christ has done through his death and resurrection and how we receive that by faith. So uh, uh, this really is the heart of the book of Romans. It explains really what Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are all about is this righteousness of God. And then beginning at verse, uh, of chapter 6, verse 1, uh, Paul starts to talk about the life we live uh, as a consequence of the righteousness of God. So he first discussed the life we lived without God, and then he discussed the righteousness of God, what, what it means that Christ has come and taken away the sins of the world. And now he's going to discuss the new life which we live. And, and, uh, and he, the, the basic idea here is it's very interesting. He, he doesn't say, his argument is not you should try to do good so that you may enter into this kingdom and enter into a good relationship with God. His whole argument is predicated on the fact that you are already in a good relationship with God as soon as you come to Christ. The point is, however, that since you have been freed from sin and since you have come to Christ and be united to Christ in his death and in this resurrection, that's what baptism does. It unites us with Christ in his death and his resurrection so that we will follow Jesus in a life of sacrificial living, death to the sins in the life of this world, and then a new life in Christ. Since uh, we have this new life already, then we should live like that. And his point isn't, you better live like that or, or God is going to cast you out. It's really a much more profound statement. Of course you won't live like that. That's no longer you. So we don't go on sinning because we've been joined with Christ and Christ has died to sin. That is, he's died to that old world. He died once for all, it says. But then he lives, that in his life with God is an ongoing thing. He lives to God uh, in a new life. Uh, so Jesus' new resurrected life is what he's talking about. But then he, he says, by comparison, we also should consider ourselves dead to sin. When a person comes to Christ in baptism, <clears throat> Christ it brings us into a new life with God, a, a new a new status. We are no longer living in a condition of sin, but in a condition of the righteousness of God. And that means we're new people. And that means that we, like Christ, should walk in newness of life. That's his whole point, uh, that, that we are alive to God in Christ Jesus, he says. The point of all of this, then, in terms of how we ought to live, is in verse 12. <clears throat> in verse 12, it says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, right? Sin is no longer your master. It's no longer the condition in which we live. So we don't do the things that are appropriate to that condition. Instead, we do the things that are appropriate to the new condition in which uh, we live. And he points out that we are slaves. We were slaves and we are slaves. 
Now, this is very important, especially uh, among us Americans who sometimes get carried away with the value of freedom. Um, Paul in, in the New Testament in Scripture generally has no particular interest in freedom as such. You, you can be free. Uh, we can talk about being free, but we're really only free to do right. We're never free to do wrong. Now, when we were slaves to, to sin, then we were free to do whatever we wanted because sin encompasses most everything that one person might want to do. But we are no longer slaves to sin. We belong to Christ, and therefore we're slaves to righteousness, which means that we wish to do the things that belong to our new righteous condition. We're not trying to become righteous. We're trying to live a life which reflects the righteousness that we have on account of Christ. So sin, the condition of sin, leads to lawlessness, and that lawlessness needs to leads to more lawlessness. One uh, sinful deed leads to another, and then a whole life of corruption. A sinful condition and sinful status, or the condition of sin, leads to lawlessness, and that ultimately ends in death. That's the only way that it can go. On the other hand, the condition of righteousness, which we receive from God on account of Jesus' death and resurrection, leads to what's called sanctification. Sanctification means that we are actually becoming more holy and living a life more commensurate and more like the life that Jesus lived. This becomes possible when we are in a condition of righteousness. It's not possible when we're living in a condition of sin. It's like if you're sunk in a, in a pool of mud, um, try as you might, you simply can't be clean. So you can't do things that only a clean person can do. Whereas if you are placed in a clean room, it is possible for you now to do things that you could not do when you were sunk in mud. So as people living in a condition of righteousness, it is now possible to do things that please God. It is now possible to do things that actually are like the things that Jesus said and did when he walked in this earth. And the end of that is eternal life. Note that it's the end of it. It's not the reward for it. So you don't get eternal life because you have done such a good job at being righteous. It's just that righteousness and sanctification, when they become full and complete, um, blossom in eternal life. Eternal life is the condition of everlasting righteousness and everlasting and whole and complete sanctification. So what he's saying is, when you practice uh, living like Christ and practice living like a person who is under the righteousness of God, you are moving in the direction of where God is taking you, and that is everlasting life, true and perfect life. Whereas when you live as somebody who is still sunk in, in, in a sinful condition, you are moving in the direction of death and corruption. Okay, so enough of that for Romans chapter 6. Tomorrow we'll continue the discussion of how one lives the righteousness of Christ.